Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Forum, a podcast by the Diplomacy, Law and Policy Forum. Today, we're going to be talking about terrorism and international humanitarian law. And we have with us Avair Sunwar, who is the Director of Research at RSIL. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off with, um, the, de- de- the definition of terrorism has become a very politically fraught question, and it's been like this for decades. Absolutely. Um, and there's been a very solid division between the global South, Arab, Western, Africa, Arab, Islamic, and African states, and mostly Western states, as to whether wars for, of national liberation should come within the scope of the definition. Yeah. And the Global South has generally said, no, we should exclude this from the definition. And the West has been more in favor of everything being included. And after comprehensive com- convention has been left by the wayside for decades, because we cannot agree, we cannot reach any kind of consensus on this very issue. What is the definition of terrorism? Do you think that we're going to see any progress on this moving forward um, or in the future? Or is it something that we've actually just shelved for now because it's too Herculean a task to manage and to, you know, bring everyone to some kind of rapprochement on this? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that that's a really, really good, good question, uh, especially to start off with, because... Um, I mean, it has really two parts. One is looking at the treaty and whether we're going to get an international definition of terrorism. Um, and the short answer is I don't think anytime soon. Mm. Um, and of course, there's the national liberation issue. Um, both of these are are so politically, uh, you know, fraught that when it comes to national liberation, I don't think we're getting a, a clear um you know, solution to this. But what states have done is individually within their own uh, domestic realms have already tackled these issues. Right? Yeah. So, so from a functional perspective, terrorism has been defined because states have to deal with terrorism, mm. right? The, the international community is still somewhat removed from it. They're, it's an improximate uh, uh, thing. I mean, they, they, they don't deal with it as directly as states do, right? Within yeah. their territory. And so we see a, a functional definition of terrorism existing and states can individually look at, you know, issues of national liberation, uh, there. But but it's, at times it's what, what's very interesting is to see that you know states even who have this international stance would uh, their their own domestic laws would actually you know actually uh, go and and suppress even national liberation movements right mm. because no state wants wants to see those that is where um, I think uh, the the issue lies because any form of violence now um, has been labeled as terrorism yeah any form yeah. of violence that is used for any purpose especially if it's political in in, in nature would be deemed. Uh, terrorism, mm. if it's against the state, and and what the what the um, the war on terror really has done is muddied the waters even further, yeah. right? And and they've done it at the international level, which has seeped down into the the domestic uh, law level as well. And so we're seeing the, these problems come about where um, you know you you can't really make differentiations between okay, this is a good guy using violence to achieve yeah. uh, certain aims, and you know th- this is a bad guy. And that really, I think, is is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And mm. and but the problem is that we're not going to see solutions to this. Yeah. Um. Mainly because the the decision makers at this level are, uh, you know, your few UN Security Council permanent members. Frankly mm. speaking, right? They're the ones who who are in charge. Because if you really look at the 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 entire mechanism. It's not that we don't have a definition. A definition exists by, if you look at the UN Security Council listing mechanism, a person on that list is mm. a terrorist, right? So we've, yeah. we've resolved that functionally, mm. that, that problem right there. So it's really the, the, the individuals um, or, or the states that are gatekeepers for this list or for the international mechanisms that exist that declare um, individuals uh, or, or entities as terrorist entities who will be looking at this issue and who will yeah. be uh, remaining the, the gatekeepers for, for quite some time. Um, so I, I think it's it's not, uh, we're not getting a, a definition because 
to a large extent, we don't need a definition interactively, mm-hmm. right? Because functionally, mm-hmm. we resolve that issue. Yeah, and it's quite interesting when there was so much criticism when the Special Tribunal for Lebanon tried to come up with its own definition, yeah. and it was heavily criticized. They were like, "There is no, this is not, you know, um, the customary definition of terrorism, which is what they tried to to say it was." And at the same time, states that say this on an international plane, at the same time, they have their own definitions of terrorism, which can be very broad or as narrow as they exactly. want. Exactly. And there are also the states going ahead and doing counterterrorism operations mm-hmm. um, against, you know, perhaps as <laughs> movements that they're seeking to protect on the international plane. Um, and that kind of brings us to our next question, to my next question, which is about the distinction between counterterrorism or terrorism and armed conflict. Because now we have 12 treaties which now form part of the counterterrorism regime, which we can also call the terrorism suppression regime. And they're now increasingly encroaching upon um, the conduct which we traditionally believe is regulated by IHL only. Um, And now IHRL is there, but the the line between CTL and IHL is increasingly getting blurred. So is there a way to reconcile this that it is particularly problematic and perhaps unnecessary when we look at the fact that IHL already prohibits that kind of conduct that the counterterrorism regime seeks to prohibit, which is the deliberate targeting of civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we actually need that? Is it good to be like the, the terrorist, counter-terrorism regime operates in peacetime when there's an armed conflict, IHL applies? I mean, before 9-11, this was an easy question to answer. Yeah. And, and, and since, you know, the... Um, the new millennium has started. It's just become extremely difficult to, mm. to to deal with these issues because, you know, I think there is um, a conscious decision to to at times blur this distinction between uh, terrorism as a as a criminal offense as a as a criminal act and terrorism that can be dealt with as you know militancy that can be dealt with yeah. because of war. Because there is a lot of benefit to states there in the, in this gray area. For example, without having to declare a conflict existing, they can utilize the the, the laws and the permissive mm-hmm. um, principles of of, of IHL yeah. uh, in this to target to, to uh, you know detain um, uh, and intern and, and things like that. So, so that is really where we're seeing this this problem that hasn't really been resolved. And there's been a lot of attempts to engage with this. Um, but it's not going to be an easy answer because states already, I mean, there are a lot of states that that have very diverging views on this. Your Europeans have some something mm. else on the other side of the Atlantic. The Americans, we, we, we know what their stance is. Right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it has played out outside the legal realm. So the extrajudicial realm has been, you know, uh, a battlefield for a lot of these these operations, whether it's drone strikes, whether it's it's other uh, means of targeting individuals. Um, I think this goes to a, a broader question, and that is, you know, the regulation of violence. And, and the regulation of violence, um, as we've understood it traditionally, has been very clear-cut, right? Mm-hmm. That, that in a peacetime scenario, you have your law enforcement operation model, um, which applies. And when it comes to a wartime situation, that completely changes yeah. with you know the expansion uh, of, of urban violence um, uh, and and or, or sorry uh, urban warfare and urban yeah. conflict that's taking place um, and other developments that are that, that are developing. Um, it's very difficult now to even make that distinction from you know a purely legal point of view and operationally it becomes even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? So you you will have like I mean we can just take our own neighborhood neighborhood. You had militancy taking place in Fata. And then those militant groups had 
tentacles that spread all across to Karachi, Lahore, Peshawar, Quetta, um, and they were conducting terrorist operations. Mm. Right? So how would we deal with this entire thing? Yeah. Right? Uh, that becomes difficulty, uh, difficult. Where do you draw the lines? At times, it's, it's easy. For example, if you're in a otherwise relatively uh, peacetime situation, say sitting in Lahore, mm. uh, as we are right now, we know what we're going to apply there. Yeah. Right? But somewhere in between, it doesn't become that clear because the IHL rules that you're applying in FATA or, or the erstwhile FATA would be very different from um, how you can target and how you can uh, you know, nab the, the, the terrorists who are operating and linked very closely with these entities, especially th- things like funding now. Mm. You know, where do you draw the line between somebody yeah, who's, yeah. Um, is he a terrorist? Is he not a terrorist? And can you target him? Can you not target mm. him? All of those, those questions come about, which, is, which become even more difficult to answer now. Uh, so I think complexity is one of the biggest problems that we have now. Yeah, yeah. And I think... I think that the terrorism suppression regime, when it came out with its exclusion clauses, was made it a little bit simpler mm-hmm. because it was like, okay, armed conflict. When that applies, you know, you have to abide by that, and like, let's leave that out of the out of the scope of these um, some of these treaties. And even the EU, when it came out with its terrorism laws, it also excluded anything that was, you know, regulated otherwise yeah. by IHL. But at the same time, you have this. Um, the real crossroads comes when we talk about foreign terrorist fighters, because originally you, you're thinking about these people who then travel to another state by reasons of ideology, politics or whatever, go and fight in another state, especially when there's non-international armed conflict going on. And um, that was, again, you know, we had the terrorism exclusion clauses applying there. You looked at them kind of purely from an IHL basis. Then you had Security Council Resolution 2178, which really encroached and included armed conflict. Absolutely. So then it's it's also about how, what should the law be in the sense that um, what is the modus then for complying with the laws of war because uh you're already going to get penalized for, for it under this so so why why would they be that willing to abide by the laws of war and be like okay at least i'm good under this regime um and how are states looking to prosecute foreign terrorist fighters mm-hmm. and what should be done to rehabilitate them because it's very interesting to me that i always thought about this as a real conundrum we don't know what to do with them we don't know what to prosecute them under. And then I was looking at the German courts and they they were prosecuting them under both regimes of law and saying when they're actually there in the conduct of hostilities, we will charge them under IHL for war crimes, whatever they have committed there. But before they travel for their training, for their membership of a terrorist organization, who they're traveling to, you know, if they're going to go and join ISIS, we will prosecute them for that under the terrorism suppression regime. And I think I, I want to know what you think about that, because for me, that was just like, oh, that is actually a much better approach to this. And it kind of reconciles for me. It, it obtains that balance. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I can only really speak from, from the Pakistani experience. Yeah. right? And, and we've worked a lot on uh, foreign terrorist fighters um, and, and looked at, you know, how does the domestic regime a, establish jurisdiction over the, their offenses? So the German solution is, is an elegant solution. Mm. The only issue is in countries like Pakistan where we don't have very developed, you know, war crimes uh, legislation, mm. right? And we don't have those those mechanisms. How do you apply that? Yeah. Right? You yeah. have a vacuum that, that's dealing with it. So um, th- that's one thing. The second thing is, say you just apply your own criminal law, your Anti-Terrorism Act, for example. Um, one establishing jurisdiction under the current version of the Anti-Terrorism Act is not very easy, mm. right? Especially for extraterritorial. We do have the Pakistan Penal Code, which does have you know some semblance of, of allowing extraterritorial jurisdiction to uh, okay. to apply, uh, and Pakistani courts can exercise that, especially over its own citizens in that mm. regard. So um, 
that is something that that you know we have tried to expand and look at uh, and try to apply to individuals who have committed you know war crimes or or, or what could be considered terrorist activities in another country mm. um the biggest challenges are is one evidence right not only is is uh, evidence going to be difficult to yeah. uh, collect but you're looking at individuals who've been picked up by say you know unrecognized uh, entities like mm. you know the the um the, the the kurdish fighters that have been operating in say syria yeah. for example they've arrested a lot of former isis members now if they're coming back to countries mm-hmm. like pakistan or or afghanistan or, or or other countries um what is the evidence that you're going to get from okay. such an entity that isn't even a recognized state mm-hmm. right then you have un mechanisms and international mechanisms there to collect evidence there are huge issues with battlefield mm-hmm. forensics and battlefield evidence that mm-hmm. uh, that you collect the second problem is how do you modify your own domestic legal system to be able to uh, appre- uh, you know accept take in internalize that th- those types of evidence from international sources yeah. and then use them to convict in a domestic court right. your judges yeah. are not prepared for that yeah. prosecutors have never done something like that um and so it becomes really difficult mm-hmm. uh, so so those are i think some of the um you know challenges that they have to look at now what you can do is uh, start developing those laws and i think mm-hmm. that's what pakistan has done um and and what a number of countries have done where they've now started you know the the anyone funding the travel of somebody abroad for the purposes of terrorist activities abroad that is enough that is a, a an offense under pakistan okay, right. under the anti terrorism act um anyone linked with that arranging the travel all of that all of that mm-hmm. stuff is now covered there secondly what you might have to do is develop special procedures to be able to ingest the material yeah. that is uh, the, the evidence that is coming in um and train people accordingly so that's another thing uh, the the other con- but but what happens is with you know things like special procedures or you know even reducing your evidential your regular evidential requirements are the human rights concerns mm. right um because any time where you're messing about with the balance of you know defendant and and um prosecution rights and and privileges that is where you get into very dangerous territory yeah, right and that's yeah. where you know uh, the, the rights of a defendant have to be protected mm. regardless of you know how serious the offense is you can't trample on those rights yeah. um and that is where really i think the problem comes about um the other issue is rehabilitation mm. right um because these people will be uh, repatriated to their countries and whether or not they can convict them um is is besides the point how do you deal with them once mm-hmm. they're here right so if you convict them you can put them in jail uh, incapacitate them for a little bit of time but yeah. you have to deal with them and often these are individuals who have who are highly trained mm-hmm. right they've got you know experience with with weapons with explosives etc um that is one thing but say yeah. uh, a, a, but you don't have the evidence to convict them they have to now either be rehabilitated into society mm-hmm. right or you find other mechanisms which again you raise really serious human rights concerns yeah. and so Uh, I, i mean there are you know uh de-radicalization programs yeah. that, that have worked but there you know the the results are, are mixed uh, mm. always there is not always a easy solution for this so on this question i really don't know mm. uh, you know states are going to have to come up with some solutions that can deal with this effectively and we've seen and this is not a problem that you know just pakistan has or, or regional countries have this is all around the world yeah. you know with so the uk uh, you know how many problems they're having and they've completely you know abdicated all responsibility in completely, that regard completely yeah yeah um, but that is not something yeah. that pakistan can do yeah uh, and it's it's crazy to me when i see the shamima begum case because she was born in the uk she was radicalized in the uk she left from the uk um and so the idea then that just because the bengali laws for nationality are so broad mm-hmm. means that you can 
uh, the UK argument was we can strip her of nationality and it doesn't go against our obligations to not make her stateless yeah. because she can be, you know, Bangladesh's responsibility. Why should she be? She has nothing exactly. to do with that country. And, and if anything, you have as much responsibility. Exactly. To, to, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, grant her citizenship in that regard. So these are really difficult mm. questions that, that, that you know, uh, this particular problem of foreign terrorist fighters uh, is there. And again, this issue isn't going anywhere, right? Yeah. So, so it has to be resolved. And this has to be resolved both at the international level where we do see efforts taking place, but it's more of a top-down, this is what we need you to do. Mm. And that's what countries like Pakistan and other countries which are now receiving uh, foreign terrorist fighters are having to deal with. Mm. Um, that they're being told, they're not being part of the debate, part of the discussion, they're being told, this is what you need to do. Yeah. Um, and, and so they really don't have that you know, um, inherent political will to be able to make these changes right. yeah. on their own, um, it's kind of being forced down their throat. Mm. And it's quite interesting because you've already touched upon the, I, the how how broad the counterterrorism financing kind of effects are in Pakistan, oh, even that even if you fund someone to go abroad. And we're seeing this um, on an international level in terms of terrorism financing is so broad and far-reaching. Um that humanitarian organizations have complained that it actually gives rise to a chilling effect, which is that because they're so scared of, you know, uh, violating the counterterrorism financing convention, that they're actually just not providing those services in those war-torn areas, especially because, and it's particularly dire for those people because they're the most vulnerable, they're the most in need of those kind of services. And Absolutely. these organizations are like, we're actually too scared that we're going to get, you know, blacklisted or something and we're, we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to provide those services there. And it's especially an issue with Pakistan because of its spat of grey listing and all of those attendant issues. So how should we deal with that problem, especially given the fact that those are the people more in need of support and these very broad counterterrorism laws are really, uh, you know, stymieing the work that important organizations do? I mean, we don't have to look any further than Afghanistan. Mm. This is exactly what the issue is, right? Yeah. US yeah. Uh, Treasury Department sanctions that, that, that have been imposed on uh uh, I mean, even though they came up with a lot of general licenses where they said that, okay, you can uh, you can send money in for these these, these sectors um, or that you can, uh, you know, give it for humanitarian work, people were very scared. Mm. Banks were very afraid of be, of, of, be, of you know, getting caught up in the this very large American net yeah. that, that they've set up. Um, and so special, you know, the, the U.S. Treasury Department had to issue further general licenses and then give clarifications on those right. licenses. What, yeah. what do we mean by this, mm -hmm. right? But uh, and then, of course, you had Biden say, uh, you know, making the decision on on how much they're going to retain, uh, how they're going to open exactly. it up for for all of that. Uh, th so, so the, the question is that there is no doubt. Mm. I mean, there there should be no you know uh, misunderstanding on this. This has had an immensely chilling effect. Mm. In fact, people's lives are now dependent on this, mm. um, in especially in places like Afghanistan. But even beyond that, look at Pakistan. Right, we've yeah. been relisted by by FATF, and this has had a massive impact. Some are estimating over forty billion dollars in Pakistan's economy oh, wow. just by the greylisting. And okay. that and this is again not very easy to quantify. Mm. It could be far greater than this. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, where it becomes so, so issues like uh, you know humanitarian organizations operating in in some of the most dire places or financially inclusion people mm -hmm. who would now be denied banking services because they might be uh you know a risk or, or something along those lines right yeah. um that is something that is uh you know deeply concerning hopefully pakistan i mean we're, we're on our way out of the gray list and that should uh uh you know help ease ease things up but again the decision making is done very far away from us mm. uh we aren't part of this process um and and that is something that 
you know, uh, I mean, FATF as a body, for example, is, is a very unique entity that that operates in a, in, a, in a particular way and has immense sway and immense power. But the issue is that, you know, Pakistan is not a member of the 39-member um, FATF group. And mm-hmm. the countries that, that often have um, massive, you know, money laundering and terrorism financing risks, um, money laundering, look at the UK. They've been mm-hmm. given the highest uh, ratings by, by FATF right, right. again and again. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, the billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of money laundering that goes through the UK financial system um, is Pakistan or any money laundering risk to Pakistan would be a fraction of that. Right. right. Okay. And yet, you know, a country mm-hmm. like Pakistan is, is penalized yeah. uh, effectively so much. So, so these are definitely things that are concerning. I think the bigger question is how much of this can we start influencing, that mm-hmm. they should become a more fair, more equitable system. Yeah. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon, mm-hmm. uh, especially with, with regards to, to this, um, the, the, the financing issue. Um, at the same time, I think there is more that, that states like Pakistan and, and can do to, to tighten up those laws and to ensure that they don't fall in, in, in and, and their, their, their territory or their banking system isn't used um, right. maliciously. Uh but again, you know, there, there are no clear answers on this, yeah. this issue, so it's 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 quite difficult. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, it's it's very interesting, and we're gonna see. I think, um, for me, the most interesting thing about this war on terrorism and the way that terrorism has risen up is the idea that in 1977 you had an ICRC convention where they were like. Terrorism is a word with no legal acceptance. Like, it's not relevant to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had these terrorism suppression conventions because of, you know, various hijackings and bombings that were going on and various conflicts. And then post-2001, you really had this whole notion. And now all of these academics are coming out and saying, you should never have a war against something which is not a proper noun. Yeah. So wars happen against states. They happen against, you know, even non-state, non-state actors. They don't happen against terrorism they can't happen against drugs because that means that the entire world is your battlefield then and that's and, the problem and that's exactly why they happen yeah right? because yeah, yeah, you yeah, want exactly. to be able to, to play with those, yeah. those those boundaries and those borders and those or, or or you know the soften up those borders and those boundaries um mm-hmm. and be able to enter territory which you you otherwise would not be yeah yeah and it's going to be interesting to see whether we do have where whether we see a dip now in the rhetoric of counterterrorism and terrorism like are we getting to the point where we're sick of it are we getting to the point where everyone is just like okay enough we've had 20 odd years of this and we don't want to have any more or whether we're going to see you know even more terrorism countering uh suppression treaties and stuff like that coming out I mean, I mean that that's very true. I think it's it's going to be uh, interesting to see how it develops, but I think a lot of it depends on how terrorism itself develops, mm. how entities, you know, is there going to be another ISIS yeah. that develops, and if it's going to take shape, uh, how are we going to challenge that, right? Yeah. And with the introduction of novel technologies, with the introduction of you know a more globalized world, uh, with issues like the pandemic that have come about, you know, things have evolved very quickly, yeah. right? Um, and and the law is always playing catch up in in, in these situations. Yeah. Um. So so in that, uh, it's going to be very interesting seeing how the the law develops. But I think there is a level of fatigue with. The you know over the last twenty years how we've seen things work and we want to yeah. see you know a, a better more just mechanism yeah but again this is you know more of an aspirational goal than than something that I feel is gonna I think people people have also gotten used to yes. uh, encroachment. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, an encroachment on their rights. and Yeah, like that. yeah. So that's slightly problematic. And states have also quite enjoyed leveraging it wherever they feel like it. Um, yeah. So yeah, quite a, a little bit of a doom and gloom ending, but it remains to be seen how, how this will play out in the future. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Thank you so much for we, having me. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this at home and stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you.